So, picture the scene. You're on your commute. You have listened to every single episode of I'm Absolutely Fine. You're bored of Instagram, terrified of TikTok, but you want glamour, news, gossip, a recipe, the sort of interiors porn that will seduce you with the sofa, and to dive into that, if only I had that, honey-coloured rectory in Somerset fantasy. You want The Week, Grazia, New York Magazine, The Guardian, Living Etc, House and Garden, World of Interiors, Vanity Fair, National Geographic, BBC Good Food. You want it all and you want it now. Well, now you can have it. You can have all of these things on your phone with the Readly app. It's like Spotify for magazines and newspapers, and it's amazing. Yeah, we're big fans of Readly. You have unlimited access. Your subscription can spill over onto five other devices, which means you can share with friends and family. It's really easy to use, and it's instant. I used to subscribe by post, I mean, (laughs) to New York Magazine, and it would arrive two weeks late. Now, whoosh. So you can bookmark the boots, bed linen, or the burrata, and you can do it all on your phone. Oh, I feel a bit weepy now. I know. That's why we are delighted that Readly are sponsoring this podcast. And they're offering, I'm absolutely fine, listeners, a free two-month trial. Go to readly.com forward slash midult. That's R-E-A-D-L-Y dot com forward slash midult. Read it all with Readly. Welcome to I'm Absolutely Fine, the podcast from the middle that looks at all the glamour and indignity of being a grown-up. Hi everybody, I'm Annabelle and I'm absolutely fine, but last week I found myself running through the rain from an appointment with the doctor to try and force him to give me hormones (laughs) to the piercing parlour to get a third (laughs) piercing in my right ear and I thought this is modern midlife. (laughs) This is my... All I need now is some braces and a small tattoo on the inside of my wrist. And that is modern middle-class midlife, a walking cliche. And those things will both probably happen. I Yeah, no, I want to take you for to get another one because I want another middle-life, middle-class cliche, small tattoo on my arm. Oh, okay. maybe I'll come with you and we can just keep going along our, yes, exactly, our cliched roads. And and I know I also have the COVID again. Oh, the COVID again. So apologies to you and to our listeners if I'm a little bit underpowered. I've started this in my nightie in front of my computer with all my equipment at my desk. But I may slowly and stealthily creep up into my bed in the middle of the recording so if I disappear it's just because I've fallen asleep but it's a logistical bore this you know I you know I, I curiously got the bed of me and I tested so now I have to be a responsible upstanding member of society and perform my civic duty and stay here oh which is such a shame and I'm sorry and I hope you don't actually get more unwell and more tired how are you Em? I'm Emily and I'm absolutely fine but I'm under siege in my house from birds just call me Tippy Hedron. We had an incredibly frightening situation where a crow dive bombed into the kitchen window, stunned itself, and sort of stood there on the in the hedge outside, looking sort of completely shocked and then flying off. And that was quite That's freaky That's got enough. to be some sort of harbinger. Harbinger? Harbinger? Harbinger. Oh, no, but I mean, honestly, I was literally like crossing myself, practically putting salt like places Sage. or anything. Yeah, literally saging everything. Fuck. And then a baby bird flew in and got very anxious. Like the, a day later, it got very anxious. And then I was much more David Attenborough about it. And I managed to like pick it up 
uh, very gently and kind of move it and l- let it go. But I was like, two birds in two days. Literally, the apocalypse is coming, right? Yeah, send me I mean- a sign, send me a sign. I'm going to send a black bird. You're trying to, you know, commit suicide against your glass doors. Yes, exactly. Or a baby bird that's stuck in time. I mean, honestly, if ever there was any more metaphors for life right now. Um, anyway, um, so I feel completely discombobulated. So maybe it is a sign, she says, that we have an authority on the podcast today. Now, Donna Lancaster is an authority on heartbreak in all its forms. A therapist, facilitator and a healer. She has 30 years of experience in her back pocket. She was head of teaching at the Hoffman Institute and is the co-creator of The Bridge Retreat, a six-day personal development experience where you can overcome grief and loss and step into wholehearted living. And now she's written a banger of a book called The Bridge, which is a gift for people seeking peace. We are absolutely thrilled to have her here. Donna, how are you? Oh, thank you. I am absolutely fine. But I think the reality is I'm always going to be somebody that has toothpaste down the front of her in some form. I just am, Emily. It's like, that is who I am. You know, there's there's the... I mean, I had it just before I came on to the, this Zoom call. You know, there, there's the kind of drips down me and there's always something. You know, some of those people, I have a friend that can wear white and at the end of the day, she's still white. I mean, I She repels be, dirt yeah, in she some just way. Repel, and, and she always looks glamorous. I'm not that person. So I'm absolutely fine, but I'm always going to be a little bit wonky or a little bit chaotic or a little bit toothpastey. Yeah, put it this way, I don't own a silk shirt, and I never will. There's just no point. But I love the acceptance. I mean, this is what it's Total all about, right? acceptance. It's, I like it's that. Like, it's like, I'm not going to pretend to be... So, therefore, you know, let's just move on with our lives. And I agree, 90% of our struggle, isn't it, to try and put us, ourselves into boxes that we don't fit into, and or to try and kind of iron out or kind of deny the things that we feel are failures in ourselves which is bollocks right absolute bollocks and I I, I'm, I'm really you know with the whole theme of authenticity I'm really about this whole idea of you know really showing up our full selves and we're all we all haven't got a clue we're all stumbling and bumbling you know we're, we're all intermittently falling what I call nose down in humility street and you just get back up dirt on your nose and say whoopsie you know I'm back up again and I love that about myself and I love that about other people who are courageous enough to to kind of break that perfection restriction illusion that we've been kind of brainwashed into believing but if there's anything that's going to get in the way of um living a wholehearted life and living as your whole self it's going to be heartbreak and I'd love to talk to you about heartbreak because I'm really enjoying the reframing of heartbreak that's happening at the moment I mean as you say in your book that our culture um talks about for example bereavement as if it's in a league of its own and that's at the that's sort of at the, at the top of the scale of seriousness when it comes to hurt and heartbreak um but in fact and, and then on, on the flip side of that is heartbreak makes people think of romantic love but for you it encapsulates something different doesn't it something that we all experience all the time yes absolutely and it's this idea of expanding the understanding of heartbreak as 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 to expand the our understanding of grief you know people associate grief with bereavement and they often associate heartbreak with romantic loss and i really wanted to kind of say 
we all experience through how our whole life as part of the human condition no one gets out without experiencing heartbreak in some form and it you know and they can be some of those heartbreaks are what I would call like little bruises to the heart you know like if you weren't picked maybe for the netball team at school or something like that and it's sort of like ouch you know you're the last one that no one wants in their team kind of thing and that's for some of us is like more of a bruise and then there's other experiences when the boy that you fancied at uni didn't fancy you or whatever and then it's more of a fracture and then those those life changing experiences of heartbreak where it basically smashes our heart into a million pieces and so all of these I would describe as heartbreaks and they you know and it relates to so many different experiences within life and they join forces don't they and they can something can happen and all these things can concertina up on you and you can have an what feels like a very disproportionate response to something that's hurt you this is exactly it, Annabelle. This is the whole, um, what I call a queue of heartbreaks. Because we, we it's, it, if you, I'm a very visual person, like it's almost like this, you know, you know, that girl that didn't get picked for netball, that person who didn't get, you know, the boy that she, she really was in love with at uni or whatever. And it's like those heartbreaks, big and small, they are, because we're not generally taught how to process our grief, how to process our pain around these things, is they queue up inside us symbolically. And then like you say, it's the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back, something relatively small. A great example is when somebody used to come to me and they'd say, oh, I've been with this, this partner for six weeks and he was the love of my life or they were the love of my life, whatever. And then they just finished the relationship out of the blue. And, I, and I'd say, you know, how do you feel? And they say, I feel I can't get out of bed. I feel totally abandoned. I feel devastated. I feel beyond... Um, you know, it feels so uh, out of control. And I, and then I get them to follow the trail. And some people don't even make these links because they're not taught to. It's not that they're stupid. It's just that, they're, that you know, if you, you, you can't know what you don't know. And it's like, what when you follow the trail, when did you first feel abandoned? And that's the original heartbreak that we, and they get distracted by what, you know, the guy that you knew for six weeks is almost like a red herring, you know, yeah. because it's not the original source of the wound. And that's why it's so important to go back before you can move forwards. We put something on Instagram last week and it was something like, have you ever spilled a little bit of your coffee and realised how thin the thread that you're hanging by is? Like gossamer thin. And you can have this, whether it is to do with stress or pain or anxiety, these erupting emotions to very small things. You know, that old Michael Douglas film where he suddenly got out a machine gun. Yes. <laughs> having lived a, you know, apparently a fully functional life for the past 50 years. Yes. Um, so I think, I think your point is, is that a lot of us don't realise the impact of these little losses and little hurts that happen to us in our lives. So we all experience everyday heartbreak and we would all benefit from just being better equipped to, to deal with them, you know, either as they happen or, or retrospectively. Absolutely. I think as well that the way that, you know, we were talking about it just a bit earlier, the way that sort of grief is and loss are set up, you know, in society, we feel shame, feeling intense feeling around what don't seem like big losses. Do you know what I mean? So when we look back at things, you think, I mean, I was saying to Annabelle this morning in the context, you know, because we've been discussing your book, and I was saying, is it possible that getting a present that I didn't like when I was 12 years old from my mother is a heartbreak because I remember it very much as a kind of like, but you're supposed to be the person who understands me and this shows me that you don't. So it's a separation. It is a kind of little fault line, isn't it? But then I was like, no, 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 no. It's nothing like the death of my father subsequent. You know what I mean? But actually 
it is a it is cumulative, isn't it? And it all these little fault lines appear. And it's also polluted by this idea that we all believe that we should be grateful for what we have. Yes. Yes. And I think what you're saying is there's an alternative to that message that we give ourselves. Totally. And it's also that thing of, um, like that example you just gave, Emily, of um, your mother giving you a present that you didn't want. It wasn't about the gift. It was about what that represented in terms of this significant person. Your mother, who gave you life, didn't know you. And that was yeah. the real wound that that was that, that that was created inside us, and and then you know it, then it's about possibly I don't know, but it's about oh you being ungrateful and it's only a gift, and and that's like what I mean by the red herring is that we focus on the kind of what I call the scene of the crime. We focus on that situation. And it's actually, when you dig a little bit, it's not actually about that. It's about how you felt in the presence of your mother when she gave you that gift, as an example. And it's like, you don't even know who I am. Mm, you know, mm, that's mm. much more painful than the fact that you got, you know, a, a, you know, something that you didn't want. I couldn't think of an example that wasn't really out. <laughs> that wasn't like 1950s and I wasn't even born exactly. <laughs> Yes, thank very much for the frying pan and the apron, age 12 or whatever. <laughs> but we can spend a lifetime, can't we, not actually understanding that we've been hurt yes. in a way that's been harmful to yes. us and just thinking that we're unhappy or angry. Or in my case, I spent years walking around just feeling grief-stricken. Yes. And nobody had died. Yes. And it was incredibly heavy. Yes. Um, but it, it, it really, it takes work and I suppose commitment and I think bravery to identify what what has well first of all I want to to say Annabelle about that grief stricken feeling and I think women especially are you know because we're often very sensitive and we're we're kind of socialized to to more so to be able to at least name some of our feelings etc but I think there's that thing between there's the individual experience of of grief and then there's the collective and I think a, a lot what happens is people kind of the two get merged you know uh, and so you have like your own sadness or heartbreaks and then you have the collective which is what's going on in the world and that is when people then are walking around like the walking wounded because they're carrying the weight of so much unprocessed pain and so I think that's really an important point for people to understand. Oh I see because if you are, can't process your own pain you can't understand your own pain. Yeah. You can't understand any pain. No, and, the, and and this is the thing: is if you, unless you take the time and the space, as you know, to kind of start to to, to really kind of um, separate out and see what's yours, what's the collective. And I always say, as we heal the individual wounds, we are in service to the collective ones because as we heal our hearts, we are basically lessening the load that we add to the collective wound of what's going on in the wider world. And I really believe that. And so it is, that's why I say that when you work on yourself, I call it inner activism because you're actually an activist. It's not, it's the abs, I know I've gone off piste here, but it's absolutely so important that people recognize that when you work on yourself, when you are healing your heartbreaks, you are an inner activist. <laughs> you, and it's the, it's the least narcissistic, the least self-obsessed, it's not navel-gazing, all the things that get thrown at it, 
because once you really heal your individual wounds, you create space to be in service to the collective ones because you're not interested in daddy didn't love me or mum wasn't there for me or whatever it is. You've done that work and then your whole heart can go into looking up, looking around, how can I help? How can I love and serve in the world? Which is a great balm to the idea of how dare I, I'm so lucky yes, I should be so grateful. Exactly. You talk in your book about uh, the idea of us experiencing our own or embarking on our own hero's journey. Yes, I love, I mean, the, the, the Joseph Campbell, the hero's journey, I love that model, which is in every Hollywood film you've ever seen. It's in every, you know, fictional book. There's always this idea of this being uh, called from the normal life, some kind of calling, some kind of uh, necessary leaving the known. And then we go into the kind of initiation phase where we start to go through struggles and we face demons, inner and outer. We have to slay some dragons and all of that stuff. And then eventually, and it's much more complex than this in the hero's journey, but I like the kind of condensed, just to give people a framework. So it's like you're called from the normal every day. And then there's some kind of initiation, some struggle wrestling with life you know depression anxiety are often those kind of modern day dragons that we have to to slay or make our peace with and then there's the return when you go back to, to where you came from but you're different you're a different God, that person. can happen in an hour absolutely it, does, <laughs> it happens to me in the bathroom <laughs> and, and, and i think it's like that this this hero's journey when we realise, you know, The Wizard of Oz is the classic, you know, when you look at The Wizard of Oz and you unpack it, that's the classic hero's journey, yeah. you know? Yeah, because you had the power the whole time, you right? You had the power the whole your... time, yeah, and she eventually she realises that very fact and then she goes back, you know, and then see, but she's going back looking through very different lenses into the life that she left. And that is the beauty of the hero's journey. And I think it's really comforting for all of us when we recognise that kind of, you know, Richard Raw calls it the wisdom pattern, that that's meant to be part of the hero's journey. The hero's journey is meant to be part of the human condition. It's like we all go through those calling, initiation, return, calling, initiation, return. I like the idea that we are not attempting to build a, a fresh, new, shiny, alternative version of ourselves, but to return to the person we were before we got a bit fucked up. Yes. And, and you know, and, and the idea that sometimes the book can help us to safely bring awareness to those hurts, but we're mourning lost parts of ourselves that were sometimes elements of our personality that were deemed unacceptable by people around us. So that all connects to shame and, and, and bits of ourselves that we thought weren't good enough but could now serve us beautifully. Yes. And I think as well, you know, just as attached to that is particularly for women, I think, you know, who are so pigeonholed into or sort of ex have so many roles like sort of imposed on them. And in the same way with the hero's journey, it's like the fact that you can save yourself, that you're not actually, you know, perpetually waiting for permission or for, for someone to come and rescue you. And in the same way that we can come to terms with the things that we don't like about ourselves or that we've been told we don't like about ourselves that we shouldn't like about ourselves. I mean, this morning I was saying to Annabelle, I looked at myself in the mirror and I literally just went, ugh. But, and uh, and uh, I was just washing my hands and I didn't, like, I didn't even look at myself directly and go, you're disgusting in a kind of sort of Robert De Niro taxi driver kind of way. I was literally just like, ugh, dis disgust and dismissing. Best and not like, look there anymore. Yeah, but I was like, you know, who does that? To s I would never do in a million years do it to, you know, I, and I, it's just such a terrible way that we treat ourselves. Sorry, that's a slight tangent, but... But exactly like Annabelle was saying, the idea that we have to sort of come to terms with the things that 
that we don't love about ourselves and embrace them all wholeheartedly, right? Yeah, and it's this thing, I mean, that's where we get into the whole, the piece around the shadow, you know, and the shadow is best known for the negative aspects of ourselves that we've been told that are unacceptable and that we have disowned or lost connection to. But there's also a positive shadow, which is when we see in somebody else, oh, she's amazing, oh, look at her, look at him, he's a cheat, you know. And and it's really part of our work, and there's a piece on this in the book, is really to go back for those disowned parts, both positive and so-called negative, and integrate them into your being. It's, it's And it's not excuses, it's not saying... I always call it the inner asshole. It's not saying, because I say there's a part of me, as is part of you, of all of us, there's a bit of an asshole, you know? And when I realised that that was okay, when I was like, oh, oh there's, there she is, there's my inner asshole being a bit of a prat, being a bit of a dick, and then, and then, and then it's not saying, okay, that's okay, she can run rampage, but it's just recognising we all have it. We all have the capacity at certain times, in certain situations, when we're hungry, angry, lonely, tired, you know all of that that we can behave in ways that are perhaps less than pleasant and well, that's my inner right. asshole <laughs> my huh? enormous inner asshole runs rampage <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> exactly voluminous inner asshole runs rampage when i am in pain yes so when i'm neglecting or the because pain needs an outlet right yeah absolutely it needs a, a, a totally needs an outlet and this is the thing again that we've been kind of socialized to believe you know that kind of good vibes only happy clappy brigade and it's like all that spiritual bypass nonsense sorry is is what what actually feeds the fact that the it extends the feeling of pain and grief that people carry because it's back to that thing of like oh but i lived in a nice house with a nice car so i'm not allowed to to feel pain and it's like no we need uh, we need to have a safe outlet and a safe release for things like our anger as well as our sadness and our fear. And pain will have its way. And so it's, you know, there's a great quote that I love, which is, if you don't transform your pain, you will always transmit it. And I think Ooh. it's just, yeah, and it's, so, it's by Richard Raw, and it's so true. It's like, if you don't do your inner work, it will be leaking out all over. Other people, those closest to you, the person on the street, whatever it might be. Road rage is a classic example, isn't it? It's like our pain will find its way out into the world. I really like the bit when you talk about grief, the, all the grief work, and you say grief will come knocking and, you know, we try and shove it down or we say no, whatever. But then generously, grief will come again. And I love that word generously. Give us another because, chance yeah. to deal yeah. with it. Yeah. And the idea, because again, you know, we're educated to believe that grief is the enemy that we should be fighting. This is not a feeling that we want. But you're like, no, no, knock on the door, listen to that, listen. And it's telling you something, it's a messenger. And it was a very beautiful way of reframing it in a sort of, uh, you know, in a not a, a positive, well, yeah, positive, because, you know, from every fracture, there can be a repair and therefore something more beautiful can come out of it. Yes, and the idea that grief is being sort of gentle and generous while we're being so spiky and defended because we're constantly trying so hard to defend ourselves from heartbreak. So we lose more of ourselves in the process, which in turn causes more heartbreak. So it's like a constant erosion unless you have a look at it. And this book is a... It's a therapeutic process in itself. It's not a kind of cosy little read. You have to take action if you're going to read this book, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, that was my intention, really. You know, I've been doing this work for 32 years, you know, and so it was really... And also my own personal hero's journey. And it's like, how can I put into yeah, a you book... You found yourself sobbing on the floor of a public loo, didn't you? 
Yeah, it was at, at work, but yes, it was yeah. like face down, you know, in Humility Street, as I always call it, and it it was that generous. Uh, the generous nature of my grief that and my body the body's wisdom my body just went enough bullshit on her and it brought me physically to my knees with a panic attack and I'd never had a panic attack I'm not somebody that you know certainly um, in my younger years I would never have said that I was somebody that would have like anxiety it was more the depression side of things than anxiety so there I was having what I thought was a heart attack at 30 years old in, in a toilet at work and it was like the what I know now is that life is so generous and grief and my body just went now let's take her down it's a bit like I don't know if you remember when at school when people used to kick the back of your knees and you'd go down onto your (laughs) knees yeah and that's what grief did to me it kicked the back of my knees from under me and I went down and into humility street and the only thing I could do because it was so painful to avoid the pain any longer and my Mm. body wouldn't let me so it was like okay Mm. let's begin I think that um Uh, a lot of us have, uh, you say this in your book, found, I mean, I certainly had decades and decades and decades of talking therapy, which I think probably kept me alive. But I think that also made me fall for the idea that I could analyse my way out of things and I could intellectually understand my past without having to wade and hack through the feelings. So you end up with, you you, you end up perhaps with, with certain kinds of therapy fluent in therapy talk, rather than actually releasing. So you can get, you can get a bit stuck. And so I, I think maybe this is quite good for people who understand the language and the approach and maybe have run out of things to talk to their therapist about but still don't feel so great. <laughs> yes. yeah. yeah, don't want to talk about their core wounds anymore. No. Yes, you know, if you run out of things to talk to your therapist about, then, then you know, I, I sort of thought, well I, well, I need to find a new therapist. And I thought... I cannot face that. The first year is just going to be, you know, sort of the getting to know each other. And talk. I, I can't, I can't. So it's another way, finding something that reaches the parts that conventional therapy maybe hasn't reached. Yes, yeah. And like you, Annabelle, you know, therapy, I just want to be really clear, talking therapy saved my life. And it was a first step. But, but that, what I call the neck up approach, you know, like you, I was really well versed. I understood my dad was like this, my mum was like this, so I behaved like that. I got it, you know. I'm an intelligent woman like you, and it, it, but it was neck up and the occasional tears would come down, but that wasn't enough. I had to physically, and this is where the embodied part, you know, grief lives in the body. Emotional blocks live in the body. So we have to involve the body in the healing process. You have to get out of a chair, basically. And sitting in a chair is not gonna heal your grief. And so what I hope that this book offers is a series of resources to support people to go beyond the neck up approach and down into the body, into the heart and to release what they need to safely. When all those years of of, of doing the Hoffman, which people always used to say was, you know, 10 years of therapy in eight days and then conceptualising and then executing your own bridge retreat, what were the things that you heard most from sort of women like us and our listeners, women in their 40s? quite intelligent, quite switched on, working women. What were the howls that you would hear from these people in pain? Yeah, I think a lot, uh, the, uh, a frequent thing with women in particular was the, the kind of more leaning into the sadness and the fear dimensions of grief in whatever form that might take. So a lot of women just felt like you said, that kind of sadness or like I did, I felt like I had a terminal sadness inside me. And I was like, why do I feel so sad? And it was because 
that I hadn't accessed the anger. <laughs> you know, there was an, you know, an anger is a very valid part of grief, you know. And so for so many women, because we're so, you know, girls don't do anger. That's ugly. That's messy. No, no one likes an angry bird. No one likes an angry bird. <laughs> and so it was really, you know, so many women over the years I've seen, it's like, they say stuff like, oh, you know, um, I just feel sad all the time and I feel afraid a lot, lots of anxiety. And anxiety is often, I always call it, it's like your anxiety is, uh, and I don't mean to undermine people who have serious anxiety, but it's like your anger looking for an exit door within you. You know, it's that, it's that anger's bubbling up and it needs somewhere to go and it just runs around inside you like this and it feels really like anxiety, it is like anxiety. So I think there was that thing of theme with women was around not knowing that they were angry. They didn't even know they were angry, um, let alone how to act safely access and release that anger. And then it's all the things of this, this imposter syndrome and feeling this whole idea of feeling that they're living someone else's life. That's the thing I get, you know, it's like, are we, you know, we get the career, we get the partner, we have the kids, we get married, we get the house, we get, and then people go, is that it, you know? And I think the wonderful thing, certainly for me, as, of, of midlife and this, if you can move away from the attachment to the the kind of external, which I think is an important fact, <laughs> is, is that, that when you, you, can you forget know, about your faces, but move on. <laughs> yeah, when we do, you know, I call it deepening into life, and we also deep, you know, it's sort of everything drops into life, you know, and it's like my body is kind of deepening into life as well as it goes <laughs> south. But it is um, once you've grieved that kind of like empty nest if we use that as an example so lots of women come and their children have left home and then they would come on the retreat or Hoffman and they're like what what now and who am I you know because it's this whole idea of living a life that's what I was saying of living a life of who I thought I should be as a woman what what roles I should play you know in the book we call it the birth of the false self and then when you hit midlife regardless of whether you've had uh, children or not, although all women give birth to something, all women mother something, whether that's a career, whether that's a, you know, a different relationship with, with children or whatever, they, they give birth to something, you know, we've got that kind of birthing new life energy and it's not always children, although we're conditioned to believe it is. Um, and then when you get to midlife and that's all gone, you know, what, whether you, you've had children or not, you, you, that there's a new phase, all these changes are happening. I, for me, that came with such freedom. It was like, I, I was just so done. And that's again, part of this book of when I went down on the floor in the ladies loo, it's like, I had worn so many masks that I had no idea who was underneath. And it was only through the process of pulling off these masks through my um, own therapy, through my group work, that I actually found when I f looked, that there had, I, it was like there was no one underneath at first, but it, what there was was space. And that space was for the real me, the person I was before my heart was broken one too many times, to return, and she did return, you know? And it's like, that's the wonderful thing about midlife is you kind of, if you do your inner work, you get back to childlike and wonder, like rather than childish and reactive, you know? You, 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 you really get that kind of like, I feel like I'm 55 and I'm five. You know, and that's because I've cleared out all the debris of those heartbreaks. I tell you what um, I hear a lot from women in their sort of 40s is, and it can be very, I think, corrosive, is the idea of regret. I've done everything wrong. I fucked it up. 
I am not living the life that I was meant to live because I made so many bad choices. I fucked everything because I was an asshole, and 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 backing themselves into a really dark corner, like a prison sentence. And they're like, right, this is it then, and then putting on a sort of hard shell. Now I just have to endure. And what what would you say to um to women who are, who have discovered the birth of this extreme regret? Yeah, I mean, I think again, it is part of a natural process you know I call this phase between when we are kind of when we are moving into midlife it's like the not knowing phase because you're meant to it's meant to be like tumbleweed in your life where you're like maybe the kids have left home maybe your you know your marriage is over or whatever and you get to the and you, you your career is kind of maybe not quite what you wanted or you recognize that actually money is not everything and all of these things and it's meant to have tumble tumbleweed blowing through that phase of your life and but we think that we're meant to know and we're not meant to know we're meant to be in the not knowing and again we're not taught how to do that and I think what comes up in that space is often those regrets you know and I often say to people that you need to grieve the dreams that you had of how your life would be in order to live the dream that is your life. God, the idea of living in the not knowing is making my blood run cold. <laughs> Can you say exactly what's happening next, please? Yeah, and, I, and because again, I mean, I don't want to get too political, you know, but we are women that were raised and born and bred into a patriarchal system. And so we live in a patriarchal society. So we, are, we have that sense of, uh, and some of that kind of, almost toxic masculine energy is inevitably absorbed into our our systems where we think that it's like the next thing and do and this and this and blah 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 blah, blah. and actually the, the the later years of life the midlife onwards is more about the feminine it's more about that slowing down and pacing ourselves and creating space and believe me Annabelle I'm an I'm a control freak in recovery the not know I didn't go into that not knowing phase without a fight I went in spitting <laughs> you know gloves on and then eventually life is so generous that it will make sure that you get to a place of surrender because it becomes too painful not to surrender but well, not I knowing is sort of, knowing my re- discovery of recent months is that is that trying to access this this schlocky phrase self-love i wish there was another phrase and also you know living in the feminine is not soft and defeatist it is very very powerful and dynamic absolutely mm. yeah and 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 this is the thing it's like self-love you know there's so many terms that like journey is another one you know it's like i wish there was another word but hey i'm, I'm i did it i did a retreat and, and and it was a spiritual retreat and it was amazing but uh, they kept saying right so you're arriving you're arriving yeah you're right and after three days of crying snotty cry i went where Will I have arrived? I've never done so much arriving in my life. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I know some of the language we know, and it's also been hijacked and all of this kind of thing. And and um, but I do believe in that that loving ourselves is is. And it's not the kind of vomity version of that. And just like with this feminine energy, feminine energy is about fire. It's about power. It's about really daring, you know, to actually say, here I am. And I actually don't need you to like or, or, or approve of me. I don't no need wonder your they validation. Us. <laughs> I think the power and the liberation, once you embrace those shadowy aspects of yourself, once you recognize inside all of us, there's an addict. It's, it's all the archetypes. All of us have 
have these different archetypes inside of us. And when you accept that, including grieving the regret, it's like, bring it on, watch out world. Because, you know, if there's anything that will save this world, it is the feminine, it is the female. And I feel very passionately about that. And passion well, this, is that. Well, this book it. is profoundly healing thank you for yeah. writing it thank you for coming thank to talk you. to us and um and you know and we're going to be recommending it to everybody the yeah. bridge by donna lancaster a nine-step crossing into authentic and wholehearted living absolutely yeah. thank, thank you thank you so much donna thank you annabelle thanks thank you, everybody thank you you've been listening to annabelle rifkin and emily mcmeekin of the mid-alt our book i'm absolutely fine is out now If you like what you hear, please rate, review and subscribe. This podcast was bravely brought to you by Readly. Read it all with Readly. Readly.